Awesome, Paul. Really great to have you here. Appreciate all the work you're doing in the Bitcoin community to challenge the status quo and push people to think differently. Would you like to just give a brief intro to yourself, your background, layer two labs, drive chains, etc.? Uh, yeah, sure. I've been in Bitcoin for a really long time. I presented, I think the first public appearance, I had a blog that I started in 2014 called Truthcoin, and then I spoke at Scaling Bitcoin in September 2015. That was the beginning. And the idea behind the Bit300 and 301 is that you could send Bitcoin to a different software application and then back. And so it would, instead of forcing everyone to use the same software, we would have competition, which is a pretty revolutionary idea because right now each blockchain has its own like core developers or like its own like leader, like a Vitalik or whatever you would want to call it. And so now this would be more like YouTube where anyone could just try things. And what you could try would expand enormously in scope because you could completely change the software. Like you could switch from C++ to JavaScript or to something completely different, Rust, etc. And then you can just add whatever it is you like, ZK Snarks, EVM, add, subtract, multiply and divide, whatever you like. So that's the Bit300 idea. But the key to it is that it prioritizes, not only does it let you do anything, but it prioritizes having a light touch where on Bitcoin Core, it's just this integer that counts to 13,000. And so it's a, a paradox that it's such a small, tiny feature. And yet it, in my opinion, because of the, the security model and incentives, it will enable this revolution. People have very strong opinions about it, as you might imagine. And I think I probably have to go at 11.10. So I hope we can make the most of the time that we have here. Happy to be here. Absolutely, Paul. We'd love to have you back as well to dive deeper. So could you explain like how drive chains work? What is the upgrade to Bitcoin? This requires a soft fork. Could you also, we would, lo- would love to dive into the different types of forks and things like that. But could you talk yes. about like how it actually works and then what it requires to implement? Yes. Well, how is, it seems a paradox. How could it be that counting to 13,000 would enable such a beautiful revolutionary possibilities? But it's hard to understand if you don't understand uh, Bitcoin, but uh, really most of the work, so like the, take the block size war, for example. You have the miners who are doing thermodynamic work. It has nothing to do with the block size or the or even what the chain is doing. You know what I mean? They're just doing hashes. So you factor the miners out, and then you say large blockers versus small blockers. If the large blockers are willing to run the large block nodes, then they're doing all of the CPU work, the computational work. It's, what I'm trying to get is you factor all these things out. You factor many things out. The dispute of the block size war wasn't that some people weren't willing to undertake the additional burden It was that, how do we all agree on the state of the small block ledger? So I don't know if that's a good way of explaining it, but what it does is it basically counts to 13,000, counts basically sidechain blocks. So on L1, you can prove how much work has been done on a sidechain, like how many blocks it's found, very easily by just counting. And that gates the withdrawals. So I think the best way to understand how it works is actually to just use it. We have testnet money software, but the L1 chain, the small block, what we would call it small block Bitcoin core, that's already doing everything. It's a 21 million coins. It has this whole small block Bitcoin is in there. 
it also does the deposits because every deposit is an L1 transaction. So the only thing that BIV300 has to do is get the coins to their new owners when it does the withdrawals. And these withdrawals are slowly returning transaction that where you only prove that miners have mined th- like three months worth of blocks basically on the side chain or on both chains. So that's a rambly explanation, but maybe if you ask some specific questions, I can give a more helpful answer. But I think everyone should just run. We have software that will play money, drivechain.info. If you're comfortable running software from strangers, you can build it from source or just download it. But I think very few people actually understand how it works, which is a shame because we have a software with a GUI. We have it explaining what it's doing most of the time. Basically, the, the main kind of key feature is the bridge, is that correct? And then yes. how is the data availability or how is the data shared across the two? Or are they not? Or is it just the bridge? Right. Essentially? It's very important that in my view, the data availability problem is ex- very extreme and very important. And so what I actually do is I fold on it completely. So this is where, see, because people will say we could improve the bridge if it was ZK Snark, it would be perfectly secure. But not really. That was why I gave you that long rambly answer that was probably confusing. But I, I said, you can factor the miners out and you can factor out the fact that some, some people like a Roger Veer or whatever, they were willing to run the large block nodes. So they were willing to have the data available. So I think data availability is so important that what you should do is you have to build it around the people enjoying the feature on the side chain. So I say, okay, people want some feature. They want large blocks. They want ZK snarks. They want whatever. They want ring signatures. So I say they will run, we'll get them to run the nodes because they want the feature. And that's data availability. But what everyone else does is they try really hard to solve it or some other way or they ignore it. And I think both of those approaches are terrible because they lead to people saying stuff like ZK snark bridge will always work, but that's not true because... It will only work if there's data availability. So I just say, my, my idea is all about happy, consenting adults all getting what they want. And they run whatever software they want. And then out of their own selfish desire for the feature. And I build everything around that. Got it. So are soft forks like opt-in? Could you tell us a little about the different types of forks yes. on Bitcoin? Unfortunately, like, what, I think it's what, very confusing. Yes. What, what is the risk of a soft fork is the question, because if it's opt-in, how, what is the steel man of the argument for the risks involved with something that if people don't opt into it, then it's like a market, isn't it? A, is it market-based decision to have a well, soft fork? Well, I would say it's almost even superior to, like, you could say like a voluntarist, uh, you'd say like a market is like a voluntarist thing, but this is almost, but what I have to stress is if you're very interested in this topic, you could look up me at the Miami conference with. Jeremy Rubin and Jimmy Song, we did a soft forks panel. But what I have to stress is that the, the soft fork term, it has two different definitions. And it, people wildly disagree, even within those two. And the two definitions sometimes are, agree, and sometimes they're unrelated, and sometimes they contradict each other. So the two definitions are, the first definition created by Gavin Andreessen, the soft change in uh, 2012, the first definition is an opt-in change, something where you don't need everyone to upgrade. Because what he said in 2012, there's too many people. It's too difficult to get everyone to upgrade. So a hard change is very difficult. And this later became a soft fork because of the idea of a fork that would eventually resolve itself where everyone would end up on the same network. 
versus a hard fork or a hard change where you would only end up on the network if you upgraded. So that was the original definition. Then at some point, someone decided to have this tightening of the rules versus loose definition, which is sometimes the same, sometimes unrelated, and sometimes the exact opposite. And within the definition, there's a lot of disagreement, such as Luke Desch Jr., who says that you need to get almost everyone must be running the same version of the software, the latest version, or else Bitcoin has completely failed in his view, which is very different from my view, which is that there's really no sense in which it has literally failed. <laughs> it's still on and it's still doing everything it was yesterday. So that's a funny Adam back, everyone has all these different definitions about you need consensus to do a soft fork. But to me, it's clear that the soft fork is what you do. The whole point of it is that you don't have consensus. In this, unfortunately, you really have to go case by case because, again, people, this is a casualty of the block size war that it was like soft forks good, hard forks bad. And that was an oversimplification, although it's certainly true. It's certainly true that hard forks are bad, but it's not always true that soft forks are good. But mine, Bit300, is as good as they get. It's totally ignorable. You don't even need to run Bit300 itself. You don't need to... We can actually turn it on and then turn it off later without there being any consensus problems because it's just this unused OpNop5 that you trigger. You write it into your transaction. And it's as if you put a little number... You wrote a check and you wrote a little number 5 and circled it in the top left corner or something. And we can then later, if it doesn't work out, we can just shut that off. So mine is totally 100% opt-in and it has no negative effect on anyone who is not using it. Other than, of course, the indirect negative effect. If, you, if everyone switches to Bitcoin and they don't use Ethereum anymore or they don't use something else, Lightning or some other, there's many indirect ways, but there's no direct negative effect on anyone. And, and there's even... Alexi is here, and he raised his hand, and he popularized this idea of the Velvet Fork at one point, which is like a soft fork that is so soft that no one else even notices that it has happened. But mine isn't quite as soft as that, because I need everyone to agree on where the withdrawn coins are going. But it's, oh, it's what it's called. All right, Alexi, since Paul gave you a shout-out, could you explain the Velvet Fork here? Sure. Velvet Fork... And, and this is essentially a very good example to showcase how sometimes academia differs from practice. So Velvet Fork is just an overarching definition of overlay or meta protocols on Bitcoin. So things like ordinals, BRCs, RGB, taproot assets, and even merge mining falls into this category. So it's basically including, describes all protocols where you just include data into Bitcoin and you use it for data availability and total ordering. But nobody else apart from the nodes that are actively participating in this protocol actually cares. So full nodes, miners, like you have no change to how Bitcoin operates. There's no new software. You just use UpReturn or you use Taproot basically to include some data. So Velvet Forks was back. So I do have to give the credit to Dunis's Syndros from back then IOHK actually. But the idea was well to see like how far we can go. And the realization is that it's not very secure. So it works for client-side validation. You can do quite a few interesting things with it, like the whole research on data availability and total ordering being very powerful came out later. Back then in 2018, it was an exploration of, okay, can we use this to build more advanced features? It does not work for bridges, for example. So it, Velvet Forks or Meta Protocols or Color Coin Protocols 
only work if you don't need consensus. So as long as you're fine that Bitcoin does not really care about what you're doing and it's just gibberish data, and there will never be a fork of Bitcoin if your protocol breaks. So let's say there's the disagreement in, I don't know, the BRC20 protocol where somebody's double spending, Bitcoin will not care. So you have to really make sure that you handle these independently. And that is what these protocols can do. And that's why they do not work for things like bridges or for like things that require really change the state of Bitcoin itself. So the BDC kind of asset, let's say, if you want to bridge that, these types of protocols do not work. And that's why essentially we need something like Web300 or something in that direction because you need some form of kind of consensus. Uh, You need some kind of, protective mechanism that in case something does go wrong that you have if you want to inherit bitcoin security then then you basically need to have to fork it out and i believe that's why we need the soft fork so if there's a massive attack on this bridge that at least people become aware of it and then it will depend and i guess paul has much more to say about that it depends really how it plays out but i do believe that there would be a shallow fork if there's an attack and that's why you have so many block confirmations because miners are involved in this bridge process and drive chains. And then I'll, I'll stop here because I'm, I'm getting to completely different things. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Could we double click on that, Paul? Could you explain a little bit why, like with Ordinals, for example, it's just a separate node software and a ton of people download this. They're running a Bitcoin node. They're running the Ordinals protocol on top of that. How does this bridge or BIP300 or BIP301, whichever one it is, how does that require? What additional steps does it require that it needs to be a change to the, the consensus? Yeah, what happens is if you have, let's say you have like person A, B, C, A deposits two coins in, two Bitcoin in, and then B sends five Bitcoin in, and then that's seven, and then C sends whatever, another Bitcoin in, so there's eight total. And then over there, they do some kind of crazy smart contract or a purchase or something, and there's a completely different person, person E, a person X or something, and they own four coins. They obtain four coins over there. It's like a casino. You turn in cash. You go in with cash. They give you chips, and then some people win, some people lose. And then when you go back, you're, you're cashing out. So they have X has four Bitcoin on the side chain. This doesn't happen in ordinals. And they want to withdraw them back to L1. They want L1 coins. And this lets us figure out how who's getting these L1 coins. And this is the four, when they withdraw from the 300 script, this is where it counts to 13,000. They say X wants four Bitcoin, and then it slowly counts up, counts, and then it gets, when the count is high enough, the coins are released. So since Ordinals doesn't have any movement of the coins, it doesn't have movement, it doesn't gate the flow of BTC. It doesn't have to worry about this problem, but it also doesn't have the real teeth either because the real teeth is the ability to move the same money. Like when you go to the casino, it's you put a $20 bill across and you get a $20 chip. And then when you're playing in the casino and you win chips, you're not winning some weird other thing. You actually are winning U.S. dollars. And then that's the difference. So that's why it has more teeth, but that's also why we cannot just YOLO it as easily as you kind folks have done with the ordinals where you just do it. Absolutely. We love yellowing over here. We actually refer to it as fucking around and finding out. But um, Paul, so (laughs) 
the so, so is then is the drive chain submitting drive chain script to Bitcoin? Is that what's happening? There's a special script when you are paying in and a special script when you're paying out. So when you add UTXOs to the pile, you are adding more and more BTC to the pile and that counts as a withdrawal that's interpreted as a withdrawal by the sidechain software. Excuse me, that's interpreted as a deposit. My mistake. So on L1, you say, oh, I have these L1 coins. They're paid a script hash or they're whatever. I unlock them and I pay them into this script, pay them into sidechain number three. So as you add more and more of those, the, the pile of money is getting bigger and that's the total amount of BTC on the sidechain. And then when you withdraw, this is what the software does. Normally, that pile of money would just be that anyone could take. But now, you, in order to take it, it must slowly traverse this 13,000 gate like prison exit system where it just slowly leaves as that person says, oh, I'm X and I want uh, the four coins back on L1. And is the, the number 13,000 related to, I think it was like take several months, like three to yeah, six it's months? Three months, yeah. So if, every, if you have 100% miners endorsing it, then three months is as fast as it can go. And if you only have the bare minimum 51%, 51, 49% ignoring the withdrawal and 51% upvoting it, then it takes six months. So it's very slow. But this is on purpose because regular users will just swap out. There will be like basically people getting a yield. Like they'll say, I will walk these coins through slowly and I will get a tiny yield. And in return, the other people get their coins instantly, but they pay a fee. And why, could you explain the last part again? What do you mean the other people get their coins instantly? And then why does it take so long, I guess, is the question. It takes so long for increased security. So the idea is, as long as somewhere there's a peg, one-to-one exchange, like you go to, as long as there's one, it's like there's one ATM in the entire town that switches cash for checking account balance or it switches uh, casino chips for cash, if you like. You know, there's one, as long as there's one of those that works somewhere, then uh, naturally a market, a secondary market will just develop. So this would be people who are on L2 and L1. They have maybe have 100 L1 coins. And someone says, oh, I, can you, I have L2 coins. We, can we trade? We can trade with an HTLC. And the person says, okay, but I want, if I give you my precious L1 coins, at any time you can go L1 to L2. You can just say instantly. It's instant to go L1 to L2. But the L2 to L1 is very slow. So the L1 guy is going to be like, okay, wait a minute. I want 102 coins for every 100 coins that I give you. So if your friend needs cash in the ATM is far away and it's going to charge you 250 or something, $2.50 fee. But then maybe you tell your friend, listen, okay, I'll give you cash. You Venmo me $40, but I'm only going to give you whatever, $38 of cash or whatever it is. I'll give you two twenties, but you have to Venmo me $41. So is that making sense? So there's one ATM in this whole city, and it takes three months. So it takes forever. It can do 20,000 withdrawals for three months, but there's only one. And the question of why is it so slow is for security. We wanted to make it so that there's no, nothing happens rushed. Everything's transparent. Everything's intentional. We don't want anyone to be able to point fingers and say, I'm not responsible. This was a mistake. I was confused. So we want it to just happen really slowly and deliberately. So that it's very easy for everyone to pay attention. So without this sort of like very legitimate bridging to sidechains or L2s, I would imagine it leads to 
it'll be more likely that side chains, L2s, these things like have to create their own tokens and currencies and people are using Bitcoin less there. So I would imagine this is like very beneficial if you're a Bitcoin or a Bitcoin holder. So what are the opponents saying to this? Like, why are there opponents to this bit, essentially? What is their best argument? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, I don't think I don't think there is a legitimate argument against it at all. I think there is just people with conflicts of interest. And also, I'm a very polarizing figure. So I think people don't want if I become more famous, then it would be bad for them uh, politically. But there's really people say they do say weird things. Okay, so people complain that miners can steal the coins, even though I've pointed out several times that miners can steal in many different ways, including from the Lightning Network by just censoring the justice transaction. And the people in Lightning would admit that the security model of DriveChain is that the miners will get all the transaction fees from all these chains. And so they will want to support the withdrawal process. But plenty of people have really bizarre arguments along the lines of they don't want miners to earn money this way. They don't like merged mining, even though merged mining is something that was invented by Satoshi in 2010, and we have been using it continuously ever since. But a lot of people don't like it for some reason. I think people want to have their own thing that they're shilling, Lightning or RGB or whatever, or Liquid. And I really think that is the... Because as I said, the it's just an opcode that people can ignore or shut off later. But I think there's another dimension of it is that this is just a paradigm shift for people. Because I'm saying that the security model is miners can take all the coins on the side chain. But if they do that, they lose the entire future transaction fee revenue. And I've done just basic math using today's numbers. You can just look at, like, you go to cryptofees.info, and you can see that there's, the fees are potentially enormous. And we know that people like Bitcoin, and we know people like ordinals, like you guys have boosted the fees. You've given miners a little taste of what's possible with a little creativity, more revenue they could obtain. And that's what I think, that's the security model, and that's what it's always been since 2015. I think a lot of people just don't get that. They think they really want it to be some kind of thing with signatures or something that is like completely unbreakable or ZK snarks. They really, even though they don't have any idea what a ZK snark is or how it works, and they have no way of knowing if it malfunctioned, they don't like this thing that counts to 13,000 that's transparent and easily understood by the layperson. But people say all kinds of things. They complain that miners can steal. That's irrelevant because it's the user's decision what security model they would like to bear. Totally irrelevant. And then people make other complaints about this may change mining because the miners will be, they'll be so into getting these huge fees that they will, they'll care about the side chains. But that's the whole security model of drive chains that the miners will care about the side chain fees. And that's why they will keep them alive. I think a lot of it is baggage from scaling war. I think a lot of it is sour grapes also from the rise of altcoins. We have altcoins rise. And then people used to say, we'll copy that. We'll just copy Ethereum. But now, after years and years of everyone saying all this stuff, they say, writing books and things, that every altcoin is terrible. They're determined to just believe that. They won't even, they're not even open-minded to the idea that an alternative piece of software or that people in Bitcoin might disagree. Even though the disagreement is all around us. You see it with ordinals, for example. You see it with just we have like the culture war, carnivores versus vegans or whatever. So we see it everywhere. And, but I don't think there is a legitimate argument against it. It's really if you believe in consent and you believe in emerged mining, it boils down to one of three things, each of which is absurd. 
they're, you're either annoyed that miners are getting more transaction fees, which is absurd, because if you were annoyed about that, you would get rid of transaction fees from L1. And sometimes people are annoyed that the difficulty would increase because of this, making it mandatory. But if so, then you're, you're against every upward difficulty increase in Bitcoin. So you're in favor of removing proof of work from Bitcoin. And then maybe you're like against uh, merged mining, but again, merged mining has already been done. It's been Namecoin, or you're against like Riot doing curtailment credits. You're against the miner side hustle, miners making money on the sides. So if you think Brains, formerly Slushpool, they sell T-shirts on their website. But you have to be against that. You have to be against Riot ERCOT curtailment credits. You have to be against natural gas. Like it's honestly, I think absurd. So I don't think I, that's all the ideas, those three ideas added together, like miners making more money, miner side hustle via merge mining and difficulty eventually increasing. But that's the only thing that's even detectable on L1, unless what people are prepared to say is that they're against counting to 13,000. But that's, of course, completely absurd because it already the network already counts in all kinds of ways. It counts how many coins you have and it counts the block height. Yeah, just real quick on the idea of it taking six months to withdraw can you just expand briefly on why so long? It just doesn't make sense to me. I know. Why. Well, it's long because the longer it is, just the more secure it is. It takes less people's attention. In that sort of case, that, that tells me there's some centralized entity who can reverse coin or reverse. It, the, the miners, when they build on the block height, this is like when the miners do a confirmation. It's the proof of work that is counting to 13,000. So each block can move the count up if you wish. So if each block moves the count up by at most one unit, it's, it's very much like a confirmation, like 13,000 confirmations. It's probably a better way of thinking about it. And so there is no centralized way of reverting it, but there is the decentralized way, the mining process. It was originally two to four weeks, but then people kept complaining about miners can steal, so I changed it to three to six months. And that, but people still complain, so I think the, the critics just don't get the idea at all. The, most people will not want to wait, and they won't have to anyway. On, on, on that thing about like why is it so long, I think it's really – I heard Paul say this when I, I joined a few minutes ago, and I heard Paul say this. The main chain nodes can't validate any of the side chain consensus rules. So when you have a BIP 300 withdrawal, you know, if miners aren't actually running that sidechain software, like they don't know if withdraw A is the valid one or withdraw B is the valid one. So if you let it take six months of upvotes for a withdrawal to happen, then that gives plenty of time that like if the Zcash sidechain notices that an invalid withdrawal is proceeding then they can go and make a stink about it. They can wave their arms and yell on Twitter and say, hey, miners, you're processing the wrong withdrawal. Like, it's this one. Hey, we're going to go hack up an SPV client to make it, you know, easy to check that it's actually this one. Or we're going to go and try to buy a bunch of hash rate and mine the correct one. Because in theory, miners won't actually be validating something. The thing that provides the security is that a, a side chain that's being pilfered gets pilfered in slow motion and they have time to go and raise hell about yeah, it. Yeah, you could react precisely. It's like how there's a two-week time lock in Lightning where you have time to, you have two weeks to react by supplying the justice transaction. In this case, what you would do is you'd say, I have two, I have three months to hear about a problem and then 
run a, a sidechain node for the first time, maybe in SPV mode or maybe a full mode, and then you would know for sure. And this is just supposed to be a deterrent. It's like it's so easy. You just do this ratio of how easy is it for people to obtain certainty over which withdrawal is the real one, A versus B. And since it's so easy for people to eventually obtain that certainty, you just think, well, why would I bother lying about this? I'm going to get caught. It's like you go into the store and they have the cameras. You think, I'm going to get caught if I steal something here or something. But yeah, thanks. Paul, is the idea that drive chains could be upgraded itself in the future? This is just the base version of drive chains and that it could become more, the bridge could become better and more accurate over time. Is that kind of- In this case, it would be fixed, but it would be static. But I think that if we learned some, we use this and we learned that we could have it modified. I think that what people would do is, as Reindahl was saying, uh, I think people would improve it by, on the sidechain side, they'd make it just very easy to figure out what the withdrawal is. They would, there would be improved services for basically staking the L1 coins to get yield if you trust the withdrawal process or just fast withdrawal options. So I think people would build stuff around it to get away. I think people would build stuff around the, the withdrawal, which is the weakest point, the Achilles heel. And uh, they would do that. And then I think eventually it would all just be seamless. It would be like when you walk into a city, you know that you can go, you can swap your checking account balance for cash at any time. And you can also, your Visa card was probably accepted everywhere. So eventually the services will make it all seamless for the end user would be my vision. 